Good morning. Yes. Thank you for your patience and thank you for joining us. As Daniel said, this is Navigating Permitting and Appeals Under New COVID Rules. I'm Libby Bowker, an attorney at the law firm McGregor & Legere, and I'll be your moderator today. This program encompasses a permitting process from start to finish to walk you through how each distinct phase of permitting functions under the current COVID-19 procedure, procedural regime. We have four experts on hand to explain how the various new rules come together and to offer advice on how to navigate the new changes in the system. So let's meet our speakers. We have Nathaniel Stevens. He is an attorney at the law firm of McGregor and Legere, which is the oldest environmental law firm in Massachusetts. He has over 25 years of experience working with all aspects of land use permitting, and he's served on his conservation commission for almost 20 years uh, with serving as the chair for 18. Um, we also have Amy Quessel Esquire, who is an attorney at KP Law, which is the firm with the Commonwealth's largest public sector client base. She has represented and guided municipalities for over 16 years in permitting and land use matters, and has also served on her local conservation commission. We're also joined today by David Bragg Esquire, who is senior counsel at the Department of Environmental Protection. He's worked on numerous DEP adjudicatory hearings in the Office of General Counsel, um, which considers the scope and application of the State Wellness Protection Act. And last but certainly not least, we're also joined by Stephanie Mora, who is the director of the Division of Wetlands and Waterways at the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection. So for today's webinar, we're using a notice of intent or NOI um, application to a conservation commission as our example to illustrate changes to the permitting process. Today's webinar is broken up into five sections, each focusing on how the new COVID-19 rules um, affect each specific phase of the NOI process. First, I'll briefly go over the new rules and the basis uh, that form the basis of this presentation. Then I'll turn it over to Nathaniel, who will speak about how the COVID-19 changes affect the application process from the perspective of an applicant who wishes to file a new NOI. Third, Amy will address the municipal role in reviewing an NOI, how the COVID-19 rules change how a conservation commission receives, considers, and acts on an application. Fourth, David and Stephanie will address how the new COVID-19 rules affect DEP and its role with administrative appeals pursuant to the Wetlands Protection Act. Then we'll return to Nathaniel as he discusses um, if and how an applicant can ap appeal an adverse bylaw decision of a conservation commission or a final DEP administrative decision to court. If at any time during the presentation you have a question, please type it into the questions function on your Zoom app. Uh, what we'll do is we'll compile the questions and we'll have our speakers address them at the end of the presentation in a brief Q&A section. So let's get started. Uh, there are four main categories of COVID-19 rules that impact the NOI process that we're discussing today. They are emergency orders and executive orders, legislation, court orders, and agency guidance. Our speakers will address how the slew of rules come together and affect each part of the NOI process and other permitting application processes. I will now turn it over to Nathaniel to address the applicant perspective and how the COVID-19 rules have impacted the NOI filing process. Thanks, Libby. Thank you for inviting me. Good morning, everyone, and happy Earth Day, April 22nd. So as Libby mentioned, I will discuss the first portion of the permitting process, um, reminding us how, of how it was before the Municipal Relief Act and the governor's 
emergency order and then discuss how it's done now. Pre-COVID-19, the Conservation Commission would receive two copies of the Notice of Intent package. This would be, be sent or delivered directly to the Conservation Commission office. This would be done by certified mail or hand delivery. In addition, many Conservation Commissions would, would also request a, an e-copy and some of the local rules and regulations actually require e-copies. As a reminder, more than half of the Conservation Commissions in the state administer their own local wetlands bylaw or ordinance in addition to the Wetlands Protection Act. The filing fee required either under local bylaw as well as the filing fee under the Wetlands Protection Act would also need to be submitted with the application. Typically this was done by check since many conservation commissions, in fact, I'm not aware of any conservation commission that actually accepts on an, any form of online payment. The Wetlands Protection Act requires one copy of the notice of intent to be filed with DEP. This would have been done by certified mail or hand delivery. DEP does have a limited online electronic application process called EDEP, but my understanding is that even with that, the other documents and copies of documents would still need to be sent to DEP in hard copy, again, either via certified mail or hand delivery. The filing fee would be mailed to a separate location to a PO box in Boston, commonly referred to as the lockbox. Next slide, please. Libby, can I have the next slide, please? Yeah, oh. thanks. Okay, oh, there we go. <laughs> Thank you. Um, under the Municipal Relief Act, uh, the, the, the act reads, an application for a permit shall be deemed duly filed and accepted as of the date of filing by the applicant if filed with and certified as received by either the Permit Granting Authority, here the Conservation Commission, or the town or city clerk. The Municipal Relief Act provides that a Conservation Commission may accept an application and accept it by email only if it has a quote electronic submission website. The act unfortunately does not de exactly define what that is other than saying that it must provide some sort of receipt to the applicant once it's filed. Some have interpreted this term electronic submission website to mean merely that a, a conservation commission needs to be set up to allow for emails, which most are. Others interpret this as meaning that there's, a, there's some sort of sophisticated permitting program, such as we often see municipalities with building permits, a system where the application can be completely filled out online, submitted, usually reviewed, the stages of review are updated on that platform, the, the decision is announced on that platform, and any post-approval processes are also tracked on that platform. Again, I'm not aware of any conservation commissions uh, that have that capability. If the permitting authority, or in this case, the conservation commission does not have this quote electronic submission website, then the default is the application is filed with the city or town clerk. This would be done by email or mail and theoretically hand delivery, but many municipalities are largely have their city and town halls closed completely or allow walk-ins, but by appointment only. So that's why I have that in parentheses. It's, it doesn't seem to be, be a very viable option these days. The filing fee, however, still, still should be paid. But as I mentioned before, many conservation commissions at least do not have any form of electronic payment system set up. So the filing fee would still need to be sent by check. 
Mass DEP is still required to receive a copy of the notice of intent filing. Certified mail is still available, but no hand delivery. As we'll hear from David and Stephanie, I'm sure that the DEP offices are, are closed to the public, although DEP continues to do its business with staff working remotely. And it, the latest guidance from the wetlands program at least is that they would request a copy of the notice of intent be emailed to the appropriate regional office so they know, know that it's at least in the mail perhaps at the office. Apparently mail is still being still being picked up so the query whether a UPS or FedEx driver could hand, quote unquote hand deliver something to the DP office. Perhaps we'll hear more about that from, from David and Stephanie. The filing fee, however, still must be mailed to the DEP lockbox. Next slide, please. I just wanted to raise two potential legal issues that are raised in the Municipal, Municipal Relief Act. One is this sentence here that on the screen, uh, giving the permit granting authority to contest the completeness of an application. This apparently was inserted at the request of, of the municipalities because often, and especially with conservation commissions, they have the right to deny an application based on its incompleteness or lack of information. So they wanted to preserve that right. However, there's some curious language in here. For instance, the permitting authority may do this if the application is ultimately denied uh, by the board on other grounds. Under the Wetlands Protection Act regulations, there's specific authority for the conservation commission to deny solely on the grounds of lack of information. So that's a change. I believe in other forms such as subdivision and perhaps zoning too, that sometimes is a common ground, a common reason for a, a denial and perhaps sometimes the only reason for a denial. So it will be interesting to see how that plays out. Also, the permit granting authority may uh, challenge the completeness of an application if the permit is ultimately uh, appealed by the applicant. But this begs the question of how about an aggrieved party and a butter or a neighbor? Do they, do they have the right to challenge the completeness of an application? The second issue is that the Municipal Relief Act does not explicitly address filing fees. It's commonly understood and in fact embedded in many board and commission regulations that an application is not complete until the filing fee is, is uh, submitted with the application. So the Municipal Relief Act doesn't really address this head on but a wise applicant would avoid this issue and just continue with the usual practice of submitting the filing fee with their application. Next slide, please. A few considerations to keep in mind as you go through this new process. Technological, what's the file capacity of the, of the recipient? Does the, does the Conservation Commission office have a large enough capacity in their email system to receive documents. I, my understanding is that DEP's file capacity is 15 meg, which for notice of intent application is not much when you consider the 12 plus page application, the required attachments, project plans, a stormwater report with sometimes hundreds of pages of detailed applications and other aspects of, of that. So it's worth checking, checking out and figuring out how you're going to get around that Will it be multiple emails or will you try to set up a, a some, for, some sort of file transfer protocol and is that, is that protocol available to the recipient? 
Sometimes you may need to um, just end up mailing things. For instance, if online payment of the filing fee is not available, then, you're, then you do need to mail it. And that raises some physical issues. Mail, access to the post office. Do you even want to go to the post office if your post office is open? Do you have enough postage? Do you have the certified mail uh, forms? Um, fortunately, there are services like stamps.com as well as some service on the US Postal Service that can, can help you with that. In addition, as I mentioned before, access to municipal buildings may be limited at this time. So it's always a good idea to check with the Conservation Commission or the, the agent for the permitting authority you plan to file with ahead of time, how things are set up, and again, check right before you file, because as we all know in this environment, things can often change day to day. Once you filed your, your application, yeah, the predictive, there is a predictability factor. The, the norms that we knew and many of us uh, knew quite well are, are changed now. For instance, even the routine task of getting, receiving a DEP file number we've experienced has been delayed, understandably, because the staff, the DEP staff, is not at their office daily to, to do this. And in addition, under the Municipal Relief Act, which we'll hear more, from, more about from Amy, Boards have discretion whether or not to proceed and how to proceed. So I think with that, I'll turn it to Amy to fill us in more on the municipal relief act from the municipal perspective. Thank you. Um, as Nathaniel um, referenced, there is the uh, chapter 53 of the acts of 2020, which is uh, the municipal relief act. Um, this has, this act has given municipalities um, some guidance and um, some additional questions. Um, the one thing that I would definitely like to impress upon is when Nathaniel, when Nathaniel said things change day to day, that is absolutely true. Every single day we run into something different that we have to figure out. And um, so a lot of what I'm saying is um, the advice that we're giving to our, to our clients, to our conservation commissions. Um, so for example, when an application comes in, um, the Municipal Relief Act, or from now I'll call it the Act, requires that it come in um, electronically. So when, when NOIs are emailed to the conservation agent, um, it's my opinion the agent has the opportunity to forward that to the town clerk with a CC to the applicant, acknowledging that it's being forwarded to the town clerk. Um, or they, app the agent or the administrator could simply email the applicant back and say, here's the town clerk's email address, please email to the town clerk directly because the act does require that it be filed electronically with the town, the city or town clerk. Um, the other thing with regard to filing fees, um, we have uh, advised our municipalities to use a lockbox, meaning, um, for example, outside of town hall, a lot of times they'll have a tax collecting, uh, tax collector's box where you can put your tax um, payment in. So we're um, suggesting that our cities and towns use that for filing fees and things like that. It um, keeps people out of town hall and um, allows for the check to actually be filed. We're, we're, we're advising that that box be checked at the end of every day and um, everything in the box be stamped in. Um, so under normal circumstances, a conservation, conservation commission has to hold a hearing within 21 days of the, of the receipt of the application. 
that's under the Wetland Protection Act regulations. And, and I will say that quite a few of my municipalities have that in their, in their bylaw also, in their wetland protection bylaw. Um, however, that has changed. The act is now um, allowing the Conservation Commission to act um, at the end of the state of um, emergency, the termination of the state of emergency plus 45 days. Um, so the act has a couple provisions that um, don't actually mesh. Um, one is when there's a new filing that comes in, the Conservation Commission does not have to act on that until 45 days after the termination of the state of emergency. However, with, it, with pending applications, so an application that is currently on the agenda and was, say, continued from February or March, um, that is automatically stayed and told until the Conservation Commission's hearing, the first hearing after the termination of the state of emergency, but within 45 days of the termination of the state of emergency. So to make things a little bit easier on the Conservation Commissions, we are advising that new applications be heard on that first meeting after the, after the termination of the state of emergency. And that's really just to keep things, keep things, you know, easy for the Conservation Commissions to remember. Because one of the things that I think we all have to remember is when this is over, um, agendas are going to be extremely, extremely heavy, can be very full with a lot of, um, with a lot of, you know, applications to act upon. Um, with regard to meetings, um, the Act does not prohibit meetings during the, during the state of emergency. I think that one of the purposes of the Act was to relieve cities and towns from holding meetings during the state of emergency. Um, and um, if a Conservation Commission wants to hold a hearing, then um, they can. And under a previous um, order from the governor, he has relieved some of the open meeting law requirements and they can have meetings that are virtual meetings, which are something like a Zoom meeting. Um, there's also um, conference call meetings. Um, if it is a public hearing, there has to be, uh, there has to be technology that allows for participation. Um, and with, um, with regard to a meeting, if you have an open, if an NOI comes in, and the Conservation Commission decides that they do want to hear it during the state of emergency. Um, there is no change for butter notices, publications, um, postings, things like that. We are, um, we are advising that all of our cities and towns post everything on the website, which um, at, this, at this time most, most do anyway. Um, and then the agenda, the posting of the agenda, um, you have to have the hearing posting up um, you know, up at the town clerk's office or whatever the bulletin board is in town hall. But with regard to the open meeting law, you have to have your agenda up within, you know, 48 hours ahead of the meeting. And um, the act requires that, um, or the open meeting law um, executive order requires that the agenda have directions for how to join the virtual meeting. Um, next slide, please. Um, so um, with scheduling hearings, normally hearings are scheduled, you know, as you know, conservation commissions will meet once a month or twice a month. Um, the one thing that the act does that is significant in my opinion is the act allows the chairman of the conservation commission to schedule and reschedule hearings or meetings without a quorum. 
And so um, a, the chairman can simply on his or her own reschedule um, and continue hearings without the quorum to a date um, that is not more than 45 days after the termination of the um, state of emergency. So um, one of the things I had mentioned previously is that a continued public hearing is, um, it's the language that is used in the act is that it, it is automatically told and stayed and told, no, continued and told during the um, state of emergency. So that language um, is that, okay, if you have a pending hearing, it automatically gets continued. However, it, that doesn't necessarily coincide with the open meeting law, with some of the open meeting law requirements that continued hearings or even the wetland, wetland protection uh, regulations where continued hearings are continued to a time and date certain. And so um, we are advising our conservation commissions, if they have a meeting scheduled, then they should continue everything as they normally would. But the continuation date would be a, a meeting in early June, which is 45 days after the termination. You know, the earliest, it would be the earliest of 45 days after this um, termination of the state of emergency, if this termination is May 4th, which we don't know if it will be or not. Um, if not, if the meeting is simply just canceled and we would assume that everything is continued, there is no, you know, the, for a, from a due process point, there's no notice as to when it's going to be continued to. And therefore, it's our opinion that um, an applicant could be required to re-notice and republicize the whole entire notice of intent. Um, and so, so that's something that we, to get around that, we're, uh, we're advising that, that no, notice of intent hearings be continued. Um, and then also um, any continuation is to be um, any rescheduled meeting is the act requires that it be noticed on the town clerk website um, or the town or city clerk website. A lot of a lot of my cities and towns don't have a town clerk website. So um, what we're doing is we are advising that it go on the, the page, the town's website. You click on town clerk, it would be there but also just to make matters easier for everyone uh, to put it on the main page with a banner or something that says from, you know, message from the town clerk. And that would be where all the continued hearings and the, the, new, the new meeting dates would be. Um, next slide. And um, the decisions, um, a uh, conservation commission, um, they are not prohibited uh, from making decisions during the state of emergency. So um, as you know, um, a conservation commission, when they issue an order of conditions, there has to be a majority of signatures. And um, right now it's my understanding that prior to all of this, DEP accepted electronic signatures. Um, however, the registry of deeds did not, most registries did not um, accept electronic signatures. So on Friday, on April 17th, um, there was an amendment to the Massachusetts Deed Indexing Standards from 2018, and the amendment allows for electronic signatures. Um, the Conservation, Conservation Commission has to vote on this prior to being able to use electronic signatures. So um, there's a vote, that vote has to be um, notarized, has to be certified, and then it has to be filed with the Registry of Deeds. Um, and then we also have language that would be um, 
that would be inserted on the signature page that references the vote and their allowance of using electronic signatures. Um, so that, that will help during this um, state of emergency because that would allow um, these order of conditions to be signed and recorded. Um, and the big thing is that they can be signed without the Conservation Commission members having to show up somewhere to sign them. Um, and then the one thing that, um, that I've taken from the Act, it's my opinion that the Act uh, gives the discretion to the Conservation Commission to hold meetings or not hold meetings. And so therefore, um, when an application comes in, it's my opinion that it's, the, it's in the sole discretion of the Conservation Commission, whether they want to hear that notice of intent or not. Um, that being said, we are advising our conservation commissions to have some kind of rational basis for the, the hearings that they act on and the hearings that they continue. Um, a lot of conservation commissions, um, a lot of my conservation commissions are holding, um, they're finishing up notices of intent that they've, you know, had in the queue for a while that they were simply just waiting for, you know, one piece of information. Um, and then there's others that, um, that have, you know, town projects that, for example, for paving projects for the summer that they need to get, they need to get permitted now. Um, and again, most of my conservation commissions are cognizant of the fact that when this ends, they're going to have stacked agendas. And so therefore, if they can knock off whatever, um, you know, whatever orders of conditions they can, they can get issued now, is going to help them when this is over. And that, I think that's it for me. All right, now I'll turn it over to David and Stephanie. Excellent, um, thank you. Um, thank you to the BBA for organizing this. Um, it's very, very helpful um, to get the word out about these sort of confusing times. Um, and I hope that uh, all of you are doing as well as you possibly can be under these uh, somewhat trying circumstances. Um, so let me just um, give a quick overview sort of on what DEP has been, has been doing um, in response to the Commonwealth's COVID-19 um, emergency situation. Um, and then we'll get into a few specifics. Um, so basically what we've been doing is um, looking at how we as an agency implement all of our regs in all of our bureaus and all of our programs under the new circumstances um, uh, and with the administration guidance that, that you all have um, outlined um, prior. Um, the Wetlands Protection Act and those regs in particular um, present some interesting um, challenges in part because of the structure of the statewide law and regs being implemented at a local level. Um, so keeping us all um, interested and busy trying to sort that out. Um, and all of that we've been doing um, <laughs> while, and I use the word pivot um, generously, while we pivot to um, a teleworking workforce. Um, that has not been the prettiest of scenes, but we're doing pretty well with it. Um, so, um, one of the first, one of the first things the wetlands program, um, began working on is, um, we were invited, um, and have been participating since the end of March in a weekly forum 
that is, um, it's held for commissioners and agents. It's organized by the Mass Society of Municipal Conservation Professionals, MSMCP, and the Mass Association of Conservation Commissions, MACC, I'm sure you're all familiar with. Um, they've been organizing a weekly online forum, essentially as an opportunity for the uh, MSMCP and MACC boards and members, the commissioners and the agents, um, and wetlands program staff to you know, exchange information on issues that they're identifying, um, uh, what it means to try to implement um, the Wetlands Protection Act under these new circumstances. Um, and DEP has been sort of serving as a um, sort of a, a resource for those conversations. And those have been very helpful. Uh, I think several of you who are probably logged into this webinar have been uh, participating in those. So there was one very obvious um, sort of critical first need that DEP needed to sort out um, uh, in order to serve the CONCOMs. And that is um, how on earth <laughs> to submit orders, et cetera, um, to DEP when our offices are physically closed um, and when therefore hand delivery is not really an option um, and when our access to mail is limited at best. Um, so we talked with um, the, the DEP uh, wetland staff, both in Boston and the regional offices, discussed this um, and worked through the, that weekly forum, um, the CONCOM forum. And essentially, uh, we developed uh, the sort of the first generation of guidance to CONCOMs that was released and posted um, on March 28th, um, and it essentially, uh, as I think both Nathaniel um, and Amy mentioned, it essentially just recommends that in addition to how a CONCOM would normally submit um, decisions uh, or permits to DEP, that in addition to that, we recommend that they also submit it electronically via email. And in, in that guidance that's posted, we provide very specific email addresses for each of the regional offices, depending on what town, um, uh, what, what DEP region the town falls in. Um, so that was sort of the first obvious need that we attempted to address. Um, next up is um, through these, um, among other venues, but um, particularly through this um, weekly forum, there have been, as you can imagine, numerous questions that have been generated um, through the agents, the CONCOMs, uh, on behalf of applicants. Um, and what DEP has been doing is um, developing essentially an FAQ um, that we hope to release very soon and, and post and distribute. Um, the, the focus on these FAQs um, is on what is DEP as a state regulatory agency? What is within our purview to provide guidance on and, and recommendations and answers um, and to make um, generous and appropriate use of pointing people to their town council where that makes sense. Um, the topics that, um, that are among the topics covered in the forthcoming FAQs are things such as um, further submission guidance, for CONCOMs and applicants, um, a butter notification, 
public hearings and notices, uh, the ever-challenging issue of electronic signatures, um, and of course, appeals. Uh, so those are among the topics. Uh, again, we expect to have those um, released and posted in the very near future. Uh, I, I would consider that sort of a, a first generation of FAQs because um, continue uh, questions continue to be generated um, almost daily. Um, with that basic overview, I would uh, turn it over to my colleague, David, um, for a bit more information. All right. Thank you, Stephanie. And um, to echo both Stephanie and Daniel, I wish everyone a happy Earth Day and a healthy one as we go forward um, to you know, uh, optimistically May 4th, but you know, we'll see uh, what the future holds for us. Um, now, Stephanie mentioned appeals. Um, there is an interesting dichotomy um, between the local appeal process and the state appeal process. So the Municipal Relief Act did not extend appeal periods. So once a Conservation Commission issues its decision, um, the 10-day appeal period that is in the wetlands regulations and in the act um, still applies. Uh, and that is, um, as anyone who has um, you know, filed NOIs or gotten projects through, that's a very tight uh, timeline. Um, and that's still effective. So um, you know, if you represent an applicant, you really want to be aware of that. And if you represent a potential um, appellant, be it uh, an abutter, a person aggrieved, or a local uh, tenant residence group, you need to be particularly aware. And especially in this new world of, you know, electronic notices and um, items being sent out um, via email. Um, for um, DEP, however, um, in addition to the Municipal Act, there have also been several executive orders. And one of those executive orders deals with um, state permits. And the critical language for um, project uh, proponents and conservation commissions, uh, as it is uh, related to wetlands uh, and projects um, that have been appealed to DEP, um, those appeal periods for any state decision, so that would be um, a superseding order of conditions, uh, a superseding termination, or a superseding order of resource area delineation. So any of those um, documents that are um, requested by some party who is um, dissatisfied with a local decision and they appeal that to the regional office, um, those um, appeal deadlines uh, have been extended to 45 days after the state of emergency. Um, now there is, uh, there's been a lot of consternation because one of the limitations, not just in wetland, but also in some of our other programs like the water quality certification, is you can't begin work on a project if there is an active appeal period. So you have to wait uh, under normal circumstances pre-COVID. Um, those appeal periods were rather short for wetlands, 10 days. Um, if you got past that 10-day period and uh, no one had appealed, you were free to start your project uh, after you recorded the um, SOC, uh, or if in the case of a local order, the order of conditions um, at the registry of deeds. Um, 
now these appeal rights for state agency action, not for local decision, um, have been extended out to 45 days after the state of emergency. So what that means is there is this um, unknown out there uh, because the wetlands regulations prohibit um, so-called working at your own risk uh, in every circumstance except in the very narrow case of the department issuing a negative determination of applicability, a superseding determination of applicability. Um, if you receive a negative SDA, um, even though the appeal period for that has been told by the executive order until 45 days after the emergency, you can still proceed at your own risk. Um, for all other um, DEP decisions, um, that is uh, not an option. Um, and we're still working on, you know, what that looks like going forward. Um, this may be a case uh, because it's interesting, the uh, executive order is called the permit extension order. So it's kind of supposed to be for the benefit of those who are seeking and receiving state permits. But this kind of um, extension of rights does has, have this effect of um, kind of putting the brakes on uh, starting a project until after the appeal period has run. And I'll also mention one um, caveat when I said that the um, Municipal Act doesn't apply uh, any kind of extension of appeal rights to that 10-day period after a local order is issued. The um, executive order does extend DEP's deadline for requesting SOC or a superseding determination essentially from itself. Uh, we, we usually call it, because it's odd to use the term appeal to yourself, um, we usually call that intervening, um, as anyone who's kind of dealt with um, the wetlands process knows. Um, DEP is among those parties eligible to request an uh, action from the local uh, decision to the DEP regional office. So if, uh, and every local order has to come into DEP. It's reviewed by staff in that regional office. Um, if the staff determines there is some sort of issue or they feel like the project as approved by the local conservation commission doesn't comply with the wetlands regulations or the act, then we are free to, within that, under normal circumstances, within that 10 day period, like any other um, party, um, request an SOC. Um, our decision for that under section C of the executive order has been extended um, to 45 days after the appeal period, plus the 10 days um, that we would normally have. Um, like the appeal rights, um, the decision uh, right was uh, told. So um, as opposed to simply expiring on the 45th day, um, the decision deadline is told so that you don't start counting that 10 day um, period until after the 45th day. Uh, so that is kind of a, a warning to the wary. <laughs> um, you know, be aware of all of these different iterations. Um, DEP is trying to come up with a policy um, that will address this situation. Um, but right now, as Stephanie said, these issues are still being um, vetted um, at various levels of um, DEP management. Um, and uh, Additionally, uh, if you do receive a state uh, decision, so in, in the case of a final agency decision uh, of an 
FOC. So the, the three levels are the local conservation commission issues its order. Um, if someone is unsatisfied with that, they can request a superseding order from DEP's regional office. And if someone is still unhappy with that decision, they can um, file an appeal for an adjudicatory hearing, which is um, governed by 30A. And it's, you know, if, as many of you are familiar, it's kind of a mini trial. Um, each side pre presents uh, evidence. It is sent to a presiding officer who reviews it. And he issues a recommended final decision, which is then reviewed by the commissioner of DEP who issues a final decision. Um, now, once you receive a final decision, either a final order of conditions or a final termination of applicability, you are free to proceed at your own risk, even though there are appeal rights from that decision under 30A to court. And um, uh, I should bring up at this point that the SJC has also issued its own uh, modifications to appeal deadlines um, going to superior court. Uh, and I suppose at that, I should probably turn it over to Nathaniel. He'll cover the end of what happens if you do, uh, during this period, make it through the uh, final agency decision, uh, what it means if you then have to go to Superior Court under a 38 appeal. Thanks, David. I appreciate that. Um, yes, so as David alluded to, if you're at this point, you're an, an applicant or uh, an opponent to a project and you receive that final decision from DEP um, in the, in the pre-COVID-19 days, uh, there would be 30 days under Section 30A, uh, of the administrative, known as the Massachusetts Administrative Procedures Act, as I'm sure many of you are aware of, 30 days from the date of that final decision signed by the commissioner. Now under the SJC order, which David alluded to, it is 30 days after, actually, I think it's a date certain, so starting on May, May 4th, um, and again, assuming that date uh, stays the same. And then as for a local cons conservation commission decision, that is, in, that is the conservation commission decision under its local wetlands ordinance or bylaw, that doesn't go to DEP, doesn't go through the process that David just described, but an, an applicant or an aggrieved party can appeal that uh, within 60 days. And that's under uh, chapter 249, section four, seeking review in the nature of certiorari. And that 60 days is from 60 days from the proceedings complained thereof, which many interpret as the date that the written decision, written permit decision, was is, is issued by the Conservation Commission. The more conservative of us will count the 60 days from the date of the vote that the commission took at its meeting. Under the SJC order, this is now. Uh, told the 60 days is now begin you start counting on May 4th. Okay, the next slide, please. So which court do you, do you go to? As David uh, mentioned, an appeal of a final decision to uh, of DEP would go to Superior, Superior Court. And this would be done, would have been done by hand delivery uh, or mail, or in some counties we understand by e-filing, only a few few courts are equipped to do this. Where, again, if you're appealing a Conservation Commission bylaw or ordinance decision, that would have been to Superior Court most likely as well. 
if the project was large enough and fit within the parameters of the permit session of the land court, you could also go, go there too, but those, those were rare. Again, in the past, hand delivery or mail, I don't believe the land court had, has e-filing set up. Now, however, we know from the various trial court orders and the SJC court orders that the courts are essentially closed to all non-emergency matters only. So it would be convincing the court that this uh, to file now would is an emergency and needs, needs to be done at this point. Uh, certainly if you're gonna try to do anything in person, doing hand delivery or, or even mail, perhaps some of the superior court count, counties that allow for accepting e-filing, which we, under, <coughs> excuse me, which we understand are Barnstable, Worcester, Middlesex might accept a filing now, although not much would, would happen. As David alluded to, this does this extension of the appeal period does present a dilemma for the applicants because under the wetlands proceeding, under the wetlands regime at least, absent of the issuance of a preliminary injunction, the applicant proceeded can can proceed at risk. Next slide, please. So if you're lucky enough to have filed, then what are the next steps? The Superior Court, if you're in Superior Court, there's the Standing Order 196, which governs administrative uh, review of administrative decisions. And this conveniently enough covers both the review of a DEP final decision as well as a local bylaw decision. But again, due to that SJC order, all of the deadlines under that have been extended. So an applicant or plaintiff at this point would have to be prepared to uh, wait for that the deadlines in those orders to be met, such as the filing of the administrative record by either DEP or the local conservation commission, or also if there are other counts in the complaint, an answer being filed. Um, also, I should be reminded that the what, standing order 196 allows other motions to be to be brought within a certain amount of time of filing the administrative record. So, in essence, the the proceedings will will be hold be on hold, again, delays for the applicant and perhaps a small victory for any project opponents. So that's all I have to say on this. I think I'll turn it back to Libby to see if there are any questions to be answered. So thank you. All right. Thank you, Nathaniel, Amy, Stephanie, and David. That was incredibly informative and so informative. In fact, it doesn't look like any questions have come through because you've answered everything that could possibly have been answered. Um, so we can give it a few minutes if anybody watching does have a question they want to pose to specific speakers. There is a Q&A function on your Zoom app where you can type a question. We will see it. And um, all right, we have our first question. Uh, we have a, are there any flow charts for these processes? Um, I will direct that first to David uh, and Stephanie to see if there's any uh, flowcharts being developed or in existence for the DEP processes. That sounds very aspirational and I love the question. Um, the, but the answer, I'm sorry to say, is no, we are in boring old black and white text for now. Um, it's a great question though. Yeah. And, and it, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, oh sorry. And it is, you know, even for COVID, it was already a convoluted process because, as Nathaniel mentioned, when you file in a town, there's the local bylaw aspect. There's uh, concoms also implementing the state law. So already you've got two potential appeal paths um, right off the bat. And then once you go to up to DEP's level, there's that 
um, you know, from the SC level, you have a further appeal for an administrative hearing, and then that goes on to Superior Court under 30A. So, you know, even the normal process, it's pre-COVID and pre all of these uh, kind of circumstances was already somewhat daunting. Um, Amy, are there any flowcharts for the municipal processes? No, and um, as, as David just mentioned, we have um, local conservation commissions are implementing the local wetland bylaw and they're implementing the uh, state wetland regs. And um, each local bylaw is different because each local bylaw is voted at town meeting. So I have some local bylaws that require, for example, a hearing be opened within 21 days. I have some that are silent. Um, so we have, um, it would be it would be impossible to do a, a flowchart on a local level because of the different bylaws. Um, and again, we are going down to two different paths, which has always been that this is pre-COVID. It's been confusing pre-COVID. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, all right, we also have a question of can we download the outline presented? I will let you know that this uh, webinar will be available um, from the BBA after we're, we're done here, so you can refer it there. And I know that several firms, including um, McGregor and Legere, are preparing materials that essentially track the content in this webinar, so that can serve as a resource going forward if you don't wanna sit through an hour video. Um, we have another question here. Uh, any thought of high profile, high stakes projects coming in for first CONCOM hearing during COVID? And should the CONCOM decline you open the hearing on such projects? Uh, Amy, this question sounds like it's teed up for yeah. you. Um, so again, it's my opinion that the Conservation Commission has the sole discretion whether to hear, whether to hear something during the state of emergency or not. Um, I think that if I, were, if I were asked, I think my advice would be to not hold a hearing on a, on a large project um, during the state of emergency only because of the forum, only because it would be a, it's a virtual meeting. Um, it's very hard for, um, you know, commissioners to get a really good grasp on plans when they're, you know, on a laptop or even a handheld device. Um, we, we do have um, conservation commissions that are um, asking for plans to be submitted in hard copy to a drop box outside of town hall, um, but that still would require commissioners to go to town hall, pick up their copy, et cetera. Um, so it's my opinion that it would be more beneficial for the applicant and the commission to hold off until you can do a face-to-face -face meeting. All right, um, our next question I'm gonna direct towards Nathaniel. Um, how does this process compare to other common types of permitting? And are there examples of processes that are very different that come to mind? I think if I would, I think there would be parallel in terms of filing an application for a special permit or, or a variance. I think it would, uh, perhaps the, the differences that first come to mind is that in those proceedings, generally you cannot proceed until the appeal period is over. So I think that presents more of a problem for the applicant with an approval, having to wait until these told appeal periods uh, um, resume. And I think also perhaps in those instances, the timing, the date on when that applicant, when you file your application is also equally as important. And in some instances might even be, be more important, for instance, if, or, or 
you know, subdivision control instance, if someone was trying to beat a zoning change or prepare or anticipation of a zoning change, that date in which the uh, uh, application for subdivision approval might be critical. So it, 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 in the different permitting contexts, I think different aspects of this will receive different amounts of significance. All right, here's another question for Amy. Has anyone experienced issues with public access to virtual meetings, such as loss of power? Thoughts on how commissions or other reviewing boards should address such a situation? So, um, you know, I'm actually pleased to say that um, we have not received a lot of um, war stories here about, you know, virtual meetings. Um, I, I think at the very beginning there might have been an issue and it was very well publicized in the news. And so what most of the commissions are doing is they're doing meetings via Zoom. Um, they are muting everyone. Um, I have not had, um, I have not had any, any power losses. I did, um, last week we had, I, and I think it might've been last Wednesday, we had some significant, or last Tuesday, significant wind. And um, we actually had, um, we had meetings that were just canceled because of the weather. Um, so that maybe saved that. But I guess um, what would happen is you would try and get right back on and then um, continue everything. However, if a meeting is canceled because of a power outage or something like that, unfortunately, I think at that time, if any, any continuing, any pending hearing would need to be re-noticed, just as it would if a meeting got canceled because of snow, and a face-to-face -face meeting was canceled because of snow, same thing. Thank you. Um, here we have a question for Stephanie. Has any consideration been given to expediting permitting for energy infrastructure projects, which are intended to provide or maintain electric and gas service to customers throughout Massachusetts? I saw that question on there. Um, it's interesting it, um, because despite this COVID-19 um, public health emergency being serious and a huge economic impact, it's unlike, say, storm events um, or major weather events where there's damage to, say, um, you know, critical infrastructure like gas or, or electric. Um, so, I mean, there, there are already, um, you know, permitting processes in, pl in place if there's an emergency that threatens um, critical infrastructure. So we would certainly continue uh, uh, both both DEP and also local conservation commissions, um, depending on, you know, how many towns the utility passes through. Um, so those would continue to be in place. Um, so I, I, I'm not aware of any, um, you know, extraordinary other avenues to expedite particularly energy infrastructure projects during the COVID-19 situation. Thank you. Um, here we have a two-part question directed again towards Amy. Um, can you clarify your guidance to local concoms regarding when pending filings will be heard and or rescheduled after the end of the state of emergency? And if you have a reason therefore regarding due process concerns? Sure. So um, the uh, provision in the act says that pending hearings will be automatically continued and told. Um, and therefore, a conservation commission pursuant to the act can do nothing and then just simply take these up again 
after the termination of the state of emergency. However, it's my opinion if that's if that happens, if a meeting is just canceled and these pending hearings aren't continued to a time and date certain, you um, they need to be readvertised because you need to be able to let abutters know when parties and in interests know when the hearing will be. Um, and so to avoid that, um, we've kind of come up with something that it's definitely not written in stone, it's not law or anything, but um, the provision calls for, it has to be heard on the first meeting after the termination of the state of emergency within 45 days. So we simply just came up with, if May 4th is the state of, is the termination of the state of emergency, which in our opinion, that would be the earliest termination. You add 45 days, you're up to about June 20th or something. So we are advising that commissions simply schedule a meeting the first or second week of June and continue everything to that meeting. And therefore, if they continue it at a public meeting, um, then they do not have to re-notice. Then due process has been made. They don't have to re-notice anything. And it saves, um, it saves the applicant money and it saves the Conservation Commission, you know, time from, you know, organizing the whole re-notification re process. All right, and we're just about out of time, but I'm gonna squeeze in this one last question. Um, and here we have, do panelists think courts or DEP will provide any flexibility regarding deadlines missed because of COVID-19? And if so, what factors are they likely to use? Um, I'll direct this first to David and then to Nathaniel. Um, I think, uh, you know, for the most part, the orders that have uh, been in the Municipal Act have all kind of given relief to timelines. So um, I think there's already been, you know, that's what most of the action has been in terms of the executive order extending state permits uh, and, and extending appeal rights. Um, the one that I, I, as I mentioned earlier, that's kind of a warning for the unwary is uh, the, the local order appeal period is still 10 days. Um, you know, from our perspective, legally, that's kind of a jurisdictional. If you if you miss your appeal period, um, it's kind of a fatal flaw to the appeal. Uh, I suppose you could argue um, in court. You could say this: Hey, I should have gotten my um, appeal on this. Um, of course, with a local bylaw, you have to go straight to court anyway, and that's been extended by the SJC's orders. Um, but I would, you know. Factors, I guess, that they might weigh would be some sort of, you know, te technological failure. The meeting wasn't, you know, clear. The the Zoom meeting didn't go through properly, so the so the uh, potential appellant couldn't uh, meaningfully uh, participate in the hearing or get the information they needed. Um, but I don't know if Nathaniel might have something to add to that. Thanks. No, I think the only. Only other potential factors if someone is, you know, God forbid, you know, seriously ill and could not even, you know, participate in a Zoom meeting, open their mail or something like that, they're hospitalized and missed something. I think the courts would see that as a, quite an extenuating uh, circumstance, which might prevent them from doing that. But I think that's, since we're over, I won't go much farther, but thank you. All right. Thank you, everyone. Um, so that's all the time for we have today. Thank you again for joining us. And this has been Navigating Permitting and Appeals Under New COVID Rules. Thank you.